Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Hey, everybody. Welcome in to another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, the tragic tornadoes that have ravaged the Midwest, specifically Kentucky. Nick and I are going to take you through that story that happened this week. Plus, California is getting ready to take back the guns. More on that in a bit. Later on in the program, education correspondent over at NPR, Anya Kamenetz, is going to be joining us. She does a fantastic job covering everything that's been happening in the education space. And she wrote a fantastic book as well. She's going to be joining us later on the program. And then in our last segment, uh, don't hop on that Zoom work call just yet. More on that later on. First, I say hello to Nick Saveri. Nick, what's going on, buddy? No, we're good, man. The holidays get ready. Got to get the house ready for Santa. You know, things are real with that. So it's it's fun. And uh, get ready to take some time off for work, which would be much needed just to be able to focus on the family and uh and, and just be good all around. Yeah. How are you? One month old. How are not soon to be one good. month old, I think. No, no, she's past one. They're going to soon to be two. Oh, um, there it is. Everything's good here, man. Same thing. Santa Santa's have been uh, noticed. My my daughter has been into big 1950s band singing Christmas music. So if you listen to Andy Williams, Happy Holidays or anything like that, my my daughter now has has gotten a taste for her the big bands doing those songs she doesn't like the new stuff so like if it's michael buble singing 
some type of holiday song. She's like, now give me Andy Williams singing uh, uh, something. So I always I think that's hysteric. Dean Martin, Let It Snow. She likes that version over somebody else's. So it's pretty funny. But um, I tell you what, uh, I can't make a transition. I'm going to try as best as I can. But, you know, over the weekend, there was some breaking news that happened uh, in the state of Kentucky, specifically in a bunch of Midwest states. There was a huge huge tornadoes and storms that ravaged parts of Kentucky, Arkansas. Um, this is one tornado that th- it tore through four states over four hours of nighttime devastation. It's believed to be the longest distance for a tornado in U.S. history. Like I said, destruction, death, and there's a frantic search now for survivors from Arkansas all the way to Kentucky. Uh, listen to Kentucky Governor Andy Bashir. This is what he said on Sunday. He was briefing the press uh, because there was a huge candle factory in a town in Kentucky um, that got leveled. Um, I think about 50 to 60 people may be dead. The numbers are still rising as of this taping because they're still searching for survivors. But take a listen to the governor of Kentucky. Uh, This will be, I believe, the deadliest tornado system to ever run through Kentucky. Now, earlier this morning at about 5 a.m., we were uh, pretty sure that we would have we would lose over 50 Kentuckians. I'm now certain that that number is north of 70. It may, in fact, end up exceeding 100 um, before the day is done. Uh, The damage is even worse uh, now that we have uh, first light. Uh, A couple places have been hit incredibly hard. Certainly Mayfield here in Grace County, but everywhere along the line of this tornado that touched down and stayed down for 227 miles over 200 in Kentucky um, has been severely and significantly impacted. Uh, You know, President Joe Biden has already approved a state of emergency declaration in Kentucky. He's been adding federal resources to boost the state's activation of more than 180 National Guard members, as well as state police president said, I promise you, whatever is needed, whatever is needed, the federal government is going to find a way to provide it for Kentucky. Um, Nick, you know, you and I were texting back and forth and we've we, we've covered a bunch of different irregular weather patterns and done an episode on climate change. And this is just another perfect example of, you know, some type of storm happening in a in an off peak month, let's call it um, your first initial thoughts when you heard about the storm that happened a, a couple of days ago. Yeah, the first thing I looked at was, you know, what's the typical timetable for a storm like this coming through? Um, I immediately was, re- it's, I mean, it's a little loosely connected, but the freezing situation we saw in Texas, which is unprecedented there. But what I first did was just did some, it's looked quickly on the internet, just gang, look at some maps and get a sense of like, what is the typical timetable? Timetable for a storm like for tornado season is actually March through. August. So t- essentially spring, summer, right? Which makes sense because, you know, overall temperatures warmer, you know, tornado like this, any type of wind movement like this is requiring warm air. Mike, I feel like I'm shouting this from the rooftops and I wish Thor were here. Thor Benson, who, was, who came on to um, for a great interview. Um, I feel like I shout this from the rooftops regularly with warmer air. These storms will continue. Um, but I'll get off my soapbox here, but this doesn't, this just continues to be scary. We're having states experiencing weather patterns at times are unprecedented. Mike, you just said a moment ago that this is the most far reaching just from a just geographic like space distance type of thing that we've ever seen. Unprecedented weather patterns at a time where we're already questioning 
whether the planet's getting hotter, not questioning on this show, we believe it is. And we talked to enough people who confirm it to be so. That's not a coincidence. And, you know, for listeners who want to, you know, lob at me, well, you're playing politics, blah, blah, blah. Look at the data, folks, as it's the case with COVID. Something's not right. That just see it on December 10th or 11th. We're talking about a storm like this that would have happened in August. That's not an accident, man. And it happens to be that I'm outside. And again, always be careful about temperature and sort of assuming climate. But I'm outside yesterday and it's like 57 degrees and we're almost in mid-December. Right. Something something doesn't add up. But again, I don't want to draw conclusions. I'm just simply stating what things we happen to know, which is when do these storms typically take place? What's the date that this storm took place? And what's the larger trend that we're seeing with weather patterns across the nation? Listen, the, this is from an article that I read recently about uh, storms and irregular weather patterns, like you mentioned. The U.S. is unique in that it experiences more than 1,200 tornadoes annually. 1,200 tornadoes annually. You know, if you remember, about, I think it was last year, there was a huge one that ravaged through Nashville and in Tennessee, um, and it killed a bunch of people there as well. Um, so the U.S. is very unique in that regard, warm waters of the Gulf of Mexico send very warm air north, okay, as that rises and meets with higher level, very cold mountain air with the differing levels moving at various speeds, they create a wind vortex that spins and then tilts vertically, and it leads to extraordinarily powerful tornadoes like you just saw hit this community. Um, The town was Mayfield, Mayfield, Kentucky, where that candle factory that I mentioned at the beginning um, got destroyed and leveled. I was watching, you know, they were interviewing some people on the ground there and people that were still looking for survivors. The Mayfield's mayor, Kathy, excuse me, Kathy Stewart Onan, she said of her town, it looks as if a bomb has dropped on it. We hope that there are still rescues to be made, but we fear that it is now just recovery. Those words are terrible to hear, man. Just a small town like that and experiencing a storm like that. Um, if, if you want to find out how to donate to the victims uh, of this storm across where it's hit from Kentucky to Arkansas. Like we mentioned in our show notes page, there's a link there to be able to donate to the victims of these storms. We're going to be devoting more to climate change and irregular weather patterns as we get into the new year with some more guests on a topic like that. Shifting gears, California's Governor Gavin Newsom saw what happened with the Supreme Court legislation on the Texas abortion ban. Now, if you've been following all the news that SCOTUS has been having lately, there's been a couple challenges to abortion laws in Texas and Mississippi. Texas has a six-week heartbeat um, um, bill. You could check out our episode that we did with Elizabeth Findell of the Wall Street Journal. She covers all the Texas news, and she really kind of broke down everything there. But Mississippi's one is at a 15-week ban right? For on abortions, right? Because of all this legislation, SCOTUS, what they did was kept the Texas bill, which was that you could sue people that you thought were having an abortion or about to have an abortion. You can sue them. They let the states dictate that SCOTUS on that decision, right? So uh, I believe that's what they did. And I believe that's what they did because Gavin Newsom said this, and I'm going to quote here. He said, I'm outraged by the U.S. Supreme Court's decision allowing Texas's ban on most abortion services to remain in place. So everything's remaining in place. And then he says, and they're largely endorsing Texas's scheme 
to insulate its law from the fundamental protections of Roe v. Wade. Okay, so now this is where it takes a turn because he says, if states can now shield their laws from review by the federal courts that compare assault weapons to Swiss Army knives, then California will use that authority to protect people's lives where Texas used to put women in harm's way. So basically, what does that all mean? What it means now is that California is instituting a law where any it's anyone, a private citizen that wants to seek injunctive relief against anyone who manufactures, distributes, or sells an assault weapon or a ghost gun kit or parts in the state of California can be sued for up to $10,000, similar to the abortion thing that we just saw uh, playing out in Texas. And again, similar to what happened in Texas, a citizen that does not live in California can call you know, this on a person that lives in California. So I could say somebody in California, I feel like is distributing guns and I can sue that, that person because I'm a private citizen. doesn't matter if I live in the state or don't live in the state. Nick, I know you had a, a few thoughts on this because you sent me this article, but your thoughts on this. It's nice to see a Democrat actually using practical means to counter some craziness from the right. Um, you know, we talk often about Democrats struggle with practical practicality as it relates to messaging and also tactics, too. And what we just saw Gavin Newsom do is basically, you know, play the game that Texas is doing. You know, we've talked a lot on this show about, you know, Texas has figured out that if we just simply weaponize, for lack of a better phrase, citizens to do the, you know, what the state wants to do, but they know that they can't because that becomes a federal matter. Let the citizens handle it. Well, California said, I bet, for lack of a better phrase. And here we go. Um, What was also very telling in Texas is the fact that you had someone who was left-leaning call out the state by saying, well, I'm going to go ahead and sue you because someone else sued a doctor or some craziness like that. And the second that that happened, that's a precedent. That meant that outside the state in question, any ordinary citizen can get in on the action. And that's what Newsom figured out. If this measure works, if this somehow holds up, Newsom in 2024 needs to consider will easily be put forward as a nominee for the Democratic primary because he may have done what the Senate couldn't do, what President Obama couldn't do, what Democrats in the past couldn't do. He's figured out how to go after assault rifles and he's going to do it at a national level through this particular state law. It's brilliant. But again, I do wonder because while Roe v. Wade is a legal is a precedent, this is a Second Amendment issue. This is a this is right in the Constitution, and it's going to be a really interesting question to see what happens when people try to push back and say that this measure would limit the Second Amendment. Because depending on how you read it, that actually may be the case. But the precedent that the court just set with Texas was to say, well, let the state handle that if they're going to get into sort of private litigation. It's hard to undo that with California because if you do, theoretically, you're undoing precedent. So basically what you told Texas, you'd have to take that off the board. So then what Texas was thinking about doing, what Mississippi was thinking about doing would not be available. Something to also bring up too is while this is currently an executive action by the governor, they'll have the ability at the state legislature level to make this law. This is the same thing that we saw in Texas, that the governor knew that he had the legislator on his, to, on his side. So to make this law, eventually you're going to have to have the state sign off on this. An executive action can only last so long. Newsom knows the same thing in California. So before people in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, states that have 
um, Democrat governor said, well, why can't we do this? Do you have the state legislature that will back it? Because in New Jersey, where I, you know, I'm from, that's not the case. Murphy can't pull this off. He's going to have immediately moderate Democrats and some and and Republicans out of South Jersey that will not let this play. And you know, Pennsylvania, we already have enough issues with mask mandates. So Governor Tom Wolf will not let this to go through. But Gavin Newsom does have the legislature to back this up. So I applaud it. Turnabout's fair play. This goes back to this goes back to Supreme Court. They're going to have to do what they should have probably done in the first place is not let Texas's bullshit stand unopposed. More on that story in the coming weeks. When we come back after the break, Anya Kamenetz is going to be joining us. She wrote a fantastic article about schools and staffing and burnout issues that are happening at school districts around the country. Uh, There's been shortages teachers just saying that's enough, you know, mental health breaks and parents have been scrambling about this. She wrote a fantastic article. So when we come back after the break on your comments about everything happening in the education space. Today's episode is presented by stamps.com. Since 1998 stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Nick stamps.com. I love it. I love stamps.com. Not so big a fan of the post office to be clear. Love the postal workers, but I just the whole service just doesn't work for me, man. I need to get my stamps. I need to have a way to get them quickly, get them onto my envelopes and out the door. So stamps.com has always been helpful for that. Boy, hopefully the U.S. Postal Service is not listening to this because <laughs> if you guys remember in the 90s about postal service workers, anyway, stamps.com brings the services of that U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle, Etsy shop, a full-blown warehouse shipping out order, stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and a standard printer. Nick and I record on a computer and I got a printer sitting right next to me. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running, printing official package for any letter package, anywhere you want to send it, and you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and the UPS. Uh, once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup and drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Save time and money with stamps.com. Head to their page right now, stamps.com. Enter the promo code POD. You're going to get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on that microphone, type in POD, and never go to that post office again. Here to take us into the world of education. She's a fantastic education correspondent over at NPR. She's also the author of a book I highly recommend to people, and I'm saying this as somebody who works in technology. Uh, so The Art of the Screen Time, you can get that book available wherever books are sold, and that's Anya Kamenetz. Anya, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with us today. Thanks for having me. Anya, you know, we, uh, I was telling you off air about an article that we read of yours about, uh, you know, everything that's happening with school closures and parents are scrambling after there's staffing and burnout. Um, you know, we've we've heard about all these challenges during the pandemic. My mother-in-law is a teacher, so I've seen it firsthand of of teachers not being able to adapt to Zoom and 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 what's happening with kids. We've seen articles about, you know, suicide rates and things like that. Can you take our audience a little bit inside that article and and what's happening in the education sphere right now with teacher retention and teacher burnout? Yeah, um, gosh, you know, there's so much there in just in what you said. So I think it was really summed up for me by I had a couple different people for that article tell me that this is almost the worst year of the pandemic so far, as far as education goes. And I know that that sounds kind of crazy, right? But 
you know, March, 2020, everything was shut down. There was no question. There was very little controversy over shutting down schools at that moment. And, you know, we, we, we got through, we limped to the end of the school year and basically it was a little bit of a write-off. Everybody said, okay, you know, we're going to have emergency learning and we're going to get through this year. Then the fall 2020, um, schools had to do remote. They had to do hybrid. They, uh, some places they're opening up in person. There's lots of cases. That was very crazy. They had to shut down. In the summer of this year, we were hoping for a recovery year. We're hoping to get the kids back in the classroom full time and, and try to repair but right in the middle of the planning, they were hit by Delta. And the Delta wave stopped them from focusing only on full-time in-person. Lots of districts had to open up remote plans again, go back to that. And now there's national controversies over masking, over vaccine mandates. Now there's a national um, labor shortage across, not just in schools, but across in uh, um, industries. And so uh, it is just burnout on top of burnout. I'll tell you, I mean, these teachers and not just teachers, right? It's school bus drivers. It is uh, custodians. It is food service workers. Lots of people that were really essential during the whole pandemic and they're done. They are so done. And then of course the kids, right? The kids are coming back from lots of them, you know, spotty learning, missed learning, time at home, socially isolated. It's really different in different parts of the country, but there's definitely a common denominator of kids are struggling, parents are struggling, and teachers are struggling, and they're really coming together, oftentimes in anger. I mean, the clashes and the hostility, and that's just a whole other factor in schools trying to do their job on the day-to-day. Anya, in that article you wrote, you know, featured on NPR, you know, there was a parent that was quoted that had said, and I quote, you know, we're witnessing the depth of public education up close and personal. Mm-hmm. And your article focuses on why there were recent school closures, you know, attached around Thanksgiving break and how different districts were handling that. Mm-hmm. What were some of the reasons that in your, in your in your reporting that people were sharing with you, school districts, school leaders and what have you around extending those closures and you know, giving teachers additionally more space and, and schools more more time? Sure. I mean, um, so the bottom line is, you know, you, we, what we're seeing is districts cutting days from the calendar sometimes at really short notice, sometimes three or four days notice. And what's behind that is very simply not having the people to keep the doors open. So, um, you know, if you have your staff, they're putting in for paid time off. One example was a day after veterans day. So a Friday, they're trying to make that four day weekend. If you have a critical mass of people to do that. And now we have a substitute teacher shortage. The substitute teacher shortage is really a huge problem across the country. So you literally just don't have the adults in the room to keep the doors open. And that is exactly what these superintendents were telling me, you know, and, and they, they have COVID restrictions. So you can't put a hundred kids in the gym, you know, with a couple staff members to watch them because that's, that's against um, some of the rules. So really these, these district folks are saying they're between a rock and a hard place because they know that they're leaving families in the lurch at the same time, they don't have the people to come in and they can't, you know, you can't bring someone in off the street to watch the kids. Um, you know, there's certification processes for substitute teachers for very good reasons. And, um, and that's why they're finding themselves caught short. And it's just, you know, again, it's so upsetting, I think on both sides. I can definitely speak to it. <laughs> I was a certified substitute teacher in New Jersey. Um, you know, to that end, and you were talking earlier with Mike about labor shortage nationally. 
you yes. know, and we've seen it, you know, some of, you know, you it takes longer to get a cup of coffee to get your oil changed and all these things, but you're not seeing the same national outcry against say Dunkin' Donuts, Jiffy Lube and what have you. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to education, there seems to be a groundswell of just anger from parents and, and people in general sort of looking at that field not recognizing, well, not not saying not recognizing, but not giving it the same weight as you're seeing across across the country when it comes to the concept of labor shortage and such. Why is it that education seems to just draw the ire of people more so than other places that are experiencing a similar level or similar level of crisis when it comes to employment? You know, I think that's a really great question, Nick. And I would I would break it down a little bit if if I can. Um, I would say that. You know, for the families specifically that I quoted, I quoted two um, moms, both of them have kids in public school and they also work with children professionally. So one was a substitute teacher. The other one was a pediatric neuropsychologist. And they both said things to the effect of like, this is the the end of public education or we're witnessing the breakdown of compulsory education. And so what they're really voicing is a really deep sense of betrayal in so that, you know, we don't really have a very robust public welfare infrastructure in this country. There's not a lot of stuff that you can rely on as a mom. I can say this, right? Healthcare, childcare, housing. It's not necessarily going to be there for you, but as a mom with kids in public schools, you do expect the schools to be there. You expect them to be there five days a week. You expect them to serve meals and um, to be full of safe, caring adults. And, you know, that is exactly the promise that kind of broke down over the last pandemic years where first the schools were closed, then they were intermittently opened. And now, you know, it's like, well, we said we'd be open five days a week, but actually we're just going to close down for a day here and day there. That's where you get this real sense of, oh my God, like, is this ever going to come back and be something I can really count on? So that's one area I think of real, you know, it's not like a fast food restaurant. It's not like getting your car serviced. It's something that is an essential service. Um, and, and that kids, really need that they were struggling without it. Um, What's also going on, I would say, is that uh, public schools became a wedge issue, a a politically expedient wedge issue for um, activists within the Republican Party. And so that very much started with the Trump administration. It started with, you know, yelling at schools to open up, yelling at schools not to wear masks. Then you started this stuff about the critical race theory. That was something that was instigated by Trump um, with executive orders during his presidency, picked up by a lot of right-wing activists around the country. And they're basically beating on a drum that has been around kind of since um, desegregation. You know, so the idea that, you know, you have parents very angry about what schools are teaching or what they're not teaching and um, and they're, they're mobilized, they're motivated. And so it's a mix of things I think that's going on that are causing schools to become, you know, one side I think is really seeing public school more as an enemy. And the other side is sort of seeing public schools as you betrayed me. Anya, you fed into the follow-up perfectly. I was going to read something from uh, a piece that you did, or actually I think it was an interview that you did about, you know, the right-wing party and, and how they've amplified the CRT. And we've had a bunch of professors on the program from, you know, Michael Eric Dyson to Eric Foner. Mm-hmm. Talking about specifically, you know, what's happening with curriculum being politicized. I want to ask you a two-part question. The worst thing to do as a journalist. Um, the first one is, how do you feel that this will impact the topic of education? You were talking about it in Glenn Youngkin's election in Virginia. How do you feel that will carry over into the midterms? And then do you feel that these topics that 
people don't understand, like CRT, not taught in the K-12 setting, um, mm-hmm. and that it's become weaponized by a certain part, political party in this country. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that's leading to teacher turnout and teacher burnout? Hey, I don't want to join something that's becoming so politicized. You know, we've seen this with police officers. There's been surveys all across the country of, you know, uh, police officers starting to retire earlier at earlier ages or even hiring practices. It's starting to go down. So do you feel like that's at the core of it? And then, and then the, the first part about uh, how this will carry over into the midterms, the messaging. So on the personnel side, Mike, I can tell you that teachers, school leaders, school board members, they are suffering. They are feeling personally attacked. They are being personally attacked. It's not, a, you know, it's not just a feeling. They are being threatened. Their families are being threatened. And the amount of headwind that they have to go through just to do their job on a daily basis. And none of that conversation has anything to do with what they have to do every day, which is keep their kids safe, deal with their mental health, deal with their learning, get kids back in school, keep the doors open. So they have all of this to deal with. And then somebody's yelling at them about masks or vaccines or the conspiracy theories that are promulgated by the far right. So, you know, that is a lot to go on and just have, you know, you're a public servant. You didn't sign up for this, you know, um, or just a teacher, just a, just a school leader. He didn't sign up for being attacked in that way. So I think that's a very detrimental kind of burden that we're placing on the people that we really rely on. That's, that's number one. Um, in terms of the political, how effective is this going to be? Um, you know, it's going to, I'm not a political forecaster. I think that we're, we're right to say, and focus groups are bearing out that it certainly was a factor in the Virginia races. We have to look at who exactly is swayed by this. This is sort of, um, uh, pigeonholed as a white suburban mom kind of concern, um, where this idea of, cause, cause, you know, the CRT stuff that really motivates the hardcore Republican right base, and that would be the type of people that would turn out perhaps in a state legislature election um, or, you know, potentially in a primary. But the the white suburban mom where they sort of feel like they drifted over to Yunkin from Biden, they were Biden voters and they became Republican voters or they switched back to being Republican voters. They didn't like Trump, but they thought that this guy, you know, was going to was going to speak to them. And that is a that's a, that's a very important swing demographic. Right. And so thinking about. They do have kids in schools, maybe they're not so happy with their kids schooling, especially over the last year. Are they reachable on this basis? And on the the pitch being, your school didn't listen to you, you don't have a voice in your school, and I'm going to make it so you have a voice in your school. I think that could be, potentially could work in states other than Virginia. It's funny saying people that are, you know, complain about CRT and, you know, all these religion boogeymen in the schools, nowhere to be found when there was a mass shooting in Oxford, Michigan. That's cool, though. But moving on, though. Um, as when we think about what we're seeing, the trends from learn, well, two things here, teaching and learning, you know, coming out of the pandemic and then moving forward, you know, with what we're seeing in the 21, 22 academic year, Mm -hmm. Anya, from what you're seeing from your reporting conversations you've had with educators, how is this all tied to what we would consider the future of for teachers getting into the field or questioning, do they want to, but then also for students, what is that learning experience? looking like and what are the potentials for it moving further just from your abilities or read the tea leaves for lack of a better phrase from the work that you've been doing on the reporting end? You know, it's really interesting. I think that, um, you know, when it comes to teachers in the profession, there's always this conversation about, are they considering leaving or are they burnt out and are younger, you know, there's a problem with the pipeline. I think there's a real pipeline problem. I, I agree with that. That's real. Particularly when we think about teachers getting older, 
Um, the teaching workforce is not does not mirror the student body in terms of diversity. So we have a real need for a more diverse teacher pipeline that um, perhaps is is not being filled. Um, what does it take to get people into that profession? I think on the the positive side, if I could see a glimmer of a silver lining, is that the teaching profession really changed over the last couple of years, and they they did all this learning on the job. They pivoted really fast. They changed everything about how they worked, and um, it's it's leaving a space for a lot of people to ask what could happen next, you know. And and similarly on the student side, I mean, it's a learning crisis. There's lots of kids who haven't learned to read. There's lots of kids who haven't been um, served adequately in special education. There's lots of kids who started working and they're dropping out of high school now officially. Um, but there's also solutions set to these things, and it has to do with schools adapting. And so what I'm hearing from districts all over the country is we need to figure out how to meet these kids where they're at. And if that means they need night school, do they need a more flexible schedule? Do they need an individualized plan for their learning, which is kind of was the pipe dream, you know, personalized learning, very cutting edge idea, like 10 years ago. It's like, no, that's actually what, just what you have to do because you have a classroom full of kids who are all at different places based on what they've been doing the last two years. So we have to make sure we're meeting every kid where they're at. Well, the only thing I'll add there is something that Anya just said, which I'll stress to anyone listening to the show, you know, who is, you know, an education follower, but Anya just spoke to the concept of IEPs, individualized education plans. We talk about that often in the special education setting, but the reality is that personalized learning, differentiated instruction, whatever buzzword you want to use, that's the key. And if, if if the future of learning is recognized, it's not about necessarily students having a classification, but it's actually what the pedagogical pursuit is. It's a pretty awesome thing, but I just wanted to give that literacy moment to, to people who are sort of who caught on to that concept of personalized learning and usually what does that relate to in a special ed setting versus what hopefully may be actually in general ed classrooms, period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I have Nick and the education side. Let's get into my side before we let you go, Anya, because I've been in television and technology over the last 20 years. And you have a fantastic book, like I mentioned, uh, The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media in Real Life. I wanted to ask you, though, because we just recently had former FBI Assistant Director Frank Figluzzi on the program. We were talking about the shooting in Oxford, Michigan, and there was a lot of cues from social media where a lot of students spend a lot of time on their phones, iPads, right? And your book talks about balancing life from fictional, right? Mm -hmm. My job, it's my job to get engagement, keep people within experiences and apps. Tell our audience a little bit before you go about your book, the aims from that book, and how, what advice you would give to parents about balancing that norm of letting them use digital media, letting them use phones and iPads and things like that versus reading these books behind me, behind Nick. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Um, So, you know, I, I think if there's one message I can give to parents, it's that we're looking for a combination of warmth and structure when we talk about our approach to screen time as a family and everything has to do with what you model. So they're going to follow what you do, not what you say. And part of that modeling has to do with how you are able to, and it's very hard these days, especially to have those boundaries. If it's no screens at the table, no screens for an hour after dinner, try to have that dedicated time. The second thing I would advise parents to do is is sit down next to your kid when they're on their device and have them show you, have them walk through what they're looking at, what they're seeing, what apps they've downloaded, what questions they have. Keep that dialogue running because you really need to be the askable adult. When they see something online, let's see it's a, a, a classmate posted something they, they're concerned about or they're nervous about, or 
they're worried they're going to get in trouble. So they don't tell you, no, you want to be the one that they'll talk to and the one that they'll tell and the one that they'll ask. I saw this video that said this conspiracy theory. What, you know, what do you think, dad? Is that really true? Um, so it needs to be a running dialogue. And to do that, we can't um, shame them or just, uh, you know, it can't just be about put that thing away. It's going to rot your brain. It has to be about what are you seeing? What do you like? I encourage everybody to follow Anya on Twitter. She's a great follow. Check out all of her articles on NPR. Go get the book. Like I mentioned, The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life. Anya, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. I truly appreciate the time you've given us and continued success. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. All right. Our thank yous there to Anya Kamenetz. Uh, She's an education correspondent at NPR. Check out all her work at NPR.com. Check out that book as well. If you're, if you're a parent and you're trying to figure out you know, how to balance uh, I think Nick and I have talked about digital literacy a while back, but if you're really trying to balance um, how to actually not have your kids on the screen all the time, that book, The Art of the Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media in Real Life is, is a pretty good book to read, man. She gave you some tidbits there towards the end as to what she recommends as a parent. It's something that, you know, listen, every parent struggles with it, but technology has come so far away, it has, so, has come so far that you know, you really need some of these tools. I, you know, I, I know, I noticed that my daughter picks up so many different things from watching educational programming that's on her iPad or things like that. And all of a sudden she's reading words and I'm like, she, she's like two, you know? <laughs> so anyway, but that's a great book. Um, before Nick and I go in our final segment here, we want to talk about a story. You may have heard the clip at the beginning of the episode, but we want to talk about a story that made news last week. Um, if you don't know this story, Better.com, you're going to know that now. They're not, they're not better. <laughs> Better.com CEO Vishal Garg uh, recently fired 900 people over a Zoom call. Again, he basically came on the Zoom line, like you heard in the beginning clip. We'll play it again in a second. As a matter of fact, play it right now for everybody. This isn't news that you're going to want to hear, uh, but ultimately it was my decision and I wanted you to hear from me. It's been a really, really challenging decision to make. I've, this is the second time in my career I'm doing this and I do not, do not want to do this. The last time I did it, I cried. Um, this time I hope to be stronger, but we are laying off about 15% of the company. If you're on this call, you are part of the unlucky group. Your employment here is terminated effective immediately. Okay, so that was Garg on the phone, uh, on the Zoom call, excuse me, telling everybody that they were laying off about 15% of the workforce. Uh, So everybody who logged in that day thinking that they had a meeting with, and I don't know what the email context was of how they, you know, worded it to people so you can sign on. But basically everybody that signed on there, he let them know if you're on this call, you're part of the unlucky group. The weird part about this story, if you haven't been following it, is that recently better.com as of November 30th, they amended the terms of financial agreement with this bank, SoftBank. And it gave the mortgage company a cash infusion of about $750 million. So Bloomberg News reports the day after the terms of that deal was announced is when CEO Vishal Garg fired the 900 workers over that Zoom call. Remember, infused with cash and all of a sudden lay off 900 workers on Zoom. So we're introducing a new segment here that we like to call Come Get Your Man. Get your man. Nick, it's time for you to come get your boy. 
Vishal Garg, obviously, I mean, with a name like Vishal, he's got to be of Indian descent. He, he's of the tribe, man. No he, he, he is of the tribe. So, Nick, I know you had a bunch of uh, thoughts about this. I, I have a bunch of thoughts about it. I just laid out a bunch of it. I, I It's pretty messed up. Um, I don't know the context of how they set up this email calendar invite forever. Normally, you know, when you're trying to do something, you're surprising somebody for a Zoom birthday or something like that, or a work anniversary, not to fire them. And remember, the, the words effective immediately, which, you know, oof, that, that cuts deep. And I just gave you the tidbit about Bloomberg News. It's saying that this, this company had just been infused with $750 million in cash prior to. Your thoughts on, on, on this CEO doing that, especially over Zoom, especially during a pandemic when people are, are out of work? Yeah. Okay. Well, a couple of things. Um, first, the fact that it was done over Zoom is kind of a sign of the times. You know, whether it's done over Zoom or if everyone's in an office and the person comes forward and says, hey, you're all gone. It's funny because I think even in the 21st century, still thinking about firing someone not to their face, but sort of or not sort of, but over video chat still feels effed up. Um, but that's actually I mean, that's kind of the business world now. I mean, a lot of our conversations are being done this way. I mean, you and I do a show this way. <clears throat> so the nuance of it being done through Zoom is sort of it's you and I sort of showing our age because we both, when we read the story, we're kind of taken aback. Like that's, that's wild. Like over zoom, you do this as opposed to being in person, but currently, you know, in the midst of the pandemic, a lot of the world has moved over to video chat for, for health reasons. At the same time, the timing that you've been talking about, about the infusion of cash along with a mass termination of staff, it does make you wonder whether the infusion of staff was conditional to the company reducing cost. And for every employee, and again, we don't know how many of these folks were per diem, how many of these folks are freelance, how many of them were full-time employees, but think about payroll taxes, think about FICA, think about all the things as a company you're paying toward. And the idea of like for every paid employee that you're firing, the company is saving money. I'm not at all I mean, what what the guy did is ridiculous, and I'm glad he's taking a leave of absence because fundamentally, that's a that's poor leadership. Things have gone so bad that the your reaction is to you know fire a whole team of people, and 900 people makes me think that we're talking about multiple divisions. We're talking about a sizable portion. He speaks to 15%. Uh, pro tip, by the way, when someone leads with percentage over the actual specific number, be yep. suspect of that. And by that's, the way, that's a neat little trick. It's funny that you say that because everybody does that in respect to COVID numbers, right? They always play the percentage game. Oh, it's only 1% of people, 2% of people that affect 3% of people, but they don't play the numbers part of this 725,000, 5.6 million if you calculate that globally. So you're trivializing that number. I agree with you totally on that. Go ahead. Yeah. So, and that that and thank you for bringing that home to COVID because that is absolutely true. You know, people were stupid enough to say, "Well, it's only X percentage." Like a percentage is we're talking thousands of people, thousands of families who have one less person to celebrate with during the holidays. But anyway, but yeah, no, what this guy did is scummy. Um, whether it be done in person, whether it be done through Zoom, and it does make you think that at least from a company standpoint, was this money sort was this infusion of cash tied to the anticipation? Of mass termination that doesn't and maybe i'm wearing my conspiracy hat here that doesn't feel like isolated incidents but more of a conditional thing yeah. nevertheless good for him to step down that company needs to assess what does it mean to be a leader to yeah. have someone who effed up things so badly that he himself had to step down but first fired all these people 
call me crazy, but he's their leader. If things have gotten so bad that you had to fire that many people, then you as a leader effed up way earlier in the process. And you're taking it out on these folks who in the midst of a massive changeover in jobs, have to stare at the reality of what they've been doing suddenly got ended. I don't know if there's a severance situation going on, but yeah, it's just a cruel way to fire people, especially the timing of it, man. You just mentioned something about um, he's stepping down. He's taking time off effective immediately. Better, Better.com C, CFO Kevin Ryan's going to manage the day-to-day. doesn't say here the, the board basically uh, stepped in. I guess the negative PR that they were getting. Remember, this is a digital mortgage firm. He laid off 900 employees over a Zoom call. Like you just said, hasn't been announced if there's been any severance cut to those people or stuff like that. It was termination effective immediately. There was, a, there was an article about one of the employees tried to Slack message somebody immediately after the Zoom call. And all of a sudden, like his, you got to find this story, but the guy was like, all of my devices, all of my devices all of a sudden turned off. Nothing was working. He's like, it, it was really messed up the way this happened. Like it could have been executed better. You're trying to reduce workforce. I totally get that. You know, when I was at HBO and Warner Media, they laid off 7% across the board, right? And I I get, look, look, again, and it happened around the holidays. Like there is no, unfortunately, fiscal budgets happen year to year. When did they happen? January to December, you know? So you're trying to figure out, you know, who to keep, who to cut, you know, uh, where you're making money here and there. So I totally get that. Could have been executed a little bit better. And like you said, that guy's stepping away now. Check out more on this story. Um, I check out Bloomberg News because Bloomberg was the one that was really on top of all of this reporting, uh, specifically around you know the Aurora Acquisition Corporation and SoftBank kind of giving Better.com that huge loan. So check out more on that story. I'm sure more will develop in the coming weeks. Speaking of the coming weeks for this program, uh, the holiday seasons are coming up. Nick and I are getting ready to do our year recap show. Nick, it's been one year for you and I on the program. We're going to do a recap show. I stole it from Real Sports with Brian Gumbo, something I always like watching them do where they look back at some of the stories and some of the, the, the great guests and people that they've interviewed. And we're going to do the same thing here. So that next episode's coming up. And then Nick and I will be taking a bit of a break. We've got more episodes coming up in the new year. We thank you, each and every one of you, for listening. Check us out, IG, TikTok, Twitter, at Can We Please Talk Podcast, on Twitter, at Can We Please Talk. We thank you all. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And not here to fire 900 people, unlike my brown brethren. I'm Nick Severi. That's right. That guy. Oof, Nick, you got to get your boy, man. Thanks, everybody. We're going to talk about the next meeting. Bye. <laughs>